Well, welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. It's springtime. And you know when you get phone calls and you know when people let you know that you're doing a pretty good job? Well, this man came knocking at my door. Ding dong. Ding dong. And said, hey, you know about us down here? Down where men at work were working? making their songs. And I said, yeah, I know I've traveled there in this little world called Oz, far away near another place called Tasmania and New Zealand. I said, yeah, I know that area. He says, well, I've done a lot. I've done a lot for this scene. I said, I know, I know. And you're all over track source and people know who you are. And we're going to bring him up right now to introduce him to this show. He woke up as it's dark where he is to meet us on the Northern Hemisphere time. So without further ado, I want to bring up Ken at work. Good afternoon, good morning, good night. Good evening. (laughs) <laughs> good evening, good morning, and good afternoon. To the ones in Europe, it's now 7 o'clock, 7.02, here in New York with 3.03 in the afternoon, and we welcome you, Ken. I know you had to get up super early to make our clock, but everyone came to see you. So welcome to the show, mate. How are thanks, you? Thanks, thanks very much for having me, lady. Very good to be here. Thank you, and I'm glad we're able to bring you to this audience. So I said enough. I'm going to leave it with one question because I know you got a lot to tell us and you've been raring to go. So how does music find a young Ken at work? How does music find a young Ken at work? Well, at a, uh, I suppose the, the earliest influence was my, my father was a a musician in the British Army. He played the tuba. And the tuba is, you know, a very, very difficult taxing instrument to play. And my dad was in the marching band, so all the timing that I learned came from playing from my dad, playing his marching band records at a young age. And then so you had my father who was English and my mother who was Scottish. She loved the bagpipes. So <laughs> I don't know if you've heard the bagpipes. But uh, that's another difficult instrument to play. But anyway, so I had that influence of my mother playing the traditional Scottish records, my dad playing the marching band records. And then, of course, I had my two older sisters who were into the sort of 60s, late 60s psychedelica. And one of my sisters was actually uh, into Stevie Wonder as well. So that's how I sort of first came across black music, I suppose, the earliest influence was what was Stevie Wonder because you've got to set the scene, Lenny. You know, back then when I was a kid, there was no black music on radio whatsoever, no disco, no funk, no soul music. You know, the, the, the only time that you would, you would ever hear it on radio was, was if an artist had like a number one song in the States, then they'd play it on radio here. So it'd be like, you know, the, the Commodores 
or uh, you know some some Stevie songs. You know, like uptight, everything's all right. I remember you know hearing that on radio when I was a kid. So it was a very very rock rock orientated country for a long time for many many years. So you heard Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you're hearing the Doors, hearing proper Chicago, all the big Betty Beads done their cheap. Jethro <laughs> <laughs> Toll, Locomotive Breath. I know, I hear you. Yeah, so yeah, so you know, back then in the early days. It was, you know, the, the the influences, you know, musically. When I first started off, of course, was 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 rock and roll, and then, you know, through my sister hearing Stevie Wonder, and then, in the sort of mid seventies, there was a show here in Australia called Night Moves, which was hosted by a guy called Lee Simon, and Lee Simon was the first to introduce a lot of uh, artists which you just wouldn't hear on rock radio. This is like very early, you know, Robert Palmer, when Robert Palmer was very soulful, Bob Marley, uh, a lot of artists that you'd see on a, he used to stream a, a lot of artists from a show called The Old Ray Whistle Test in, in the UK. And uh, one of the one of the earliest artists which influenced me was a guy which who you may know, Garland Jeffries. Garland Jeffries was a was an old school sort of. It was a fusion between soul, rock, and uh, and reggae. And uh, you had the song. Remember the song "Wild in the Streets." Yeah, but it wasn't in, big here in America. That was big over in the UK and and your part. Yeah, yeah. It was never really big here. So that. That, that, that's where I sort of got my early influences from, you know, from that, from from glam rock. I mean, you influence influences are, are, are what you fed, and then yeah. So then it just you know the the mainstream record stores were just sort of selling rock and roll music. So you had to actually dig dig deeper if, if you wanted anything that was a little bit left of center, and disco. Soul and funk was left of center, so you had to travel into the heart of the city to uh, to find, you know, good music and, and and good records. So, how does it begin now for you? Because I'm getting the bagpipe. <laughs> that sounds a bit like a dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they do it here at all the police benefits. So I've heard many bagpipes. <laughs> but I'm going to ask this because how how many generations are you Australian now that you have coming from Europe? It's probably you know three three or four generations. Of course, you know Australia was founded by by the English back in. Oh, we know that. Know, oh, we know that. 1776, I think it was. So. Yeah, so the the generations go back, yeah, for sure, for sure, like early early settlement. I mean, of course, you, you know, the, the original people, the Aboriginals were here for hundreds of thousands of years, really. 
one of the oldest in, indigenous, indigenous uh, peoples. It's the Native Americans. And when we all came in, we, we had our way and changed everything that they had for thousands of years already. It's crazy. Yeah. So you're back to your disco, you're back to disco and rock is all over the radio. And the, you know, because I know like the UK, as much as rock was prevalent, it was very close to the American shores as far as Top of the Pops bringing some of those big acts from America. Yeah. I don't know if they really made it to those shores, but more so the UK would be very like a sister to America in a sense getting the music quickly from let's say what was happening in the United States within a few weeks or a few months, you would hear about it in Australia. I know, excuse me, in the United Kingdom, but was that the same in Australia at that time in the seventies or was it just, you were catching whatever was big in America only? Yeah. Uh, Australia was, was influenced by both the UK and, and the U S but mainly you know, you'd you have to say rock and roll music more so than than the funk and funk and disco acts. Of course, it all blew up. You know, like with the Bee Gees, with with, with Saturday Night Fever, and then everybody jumped on disco for a couple of years, and then as as quick as disco was popular, they dropped it again. You know, so you know it rose, it rose, and it and and it fell. But I suppose the good thing about about that with, with the popularity was that you know a, a lot of a, there were a lot a lot of new clubs that opened too in the late 70s early 80s so it certainly laid the laid the foundation here for what was to come so where does it begin for you the djing the whole can it can it work how's this begin for you starting you know from the beginnings of the disco because i know you're, you you go back to that era yeah yeah well i i i began djing in 78 and i actually became a dj by accident <laughs> of all things i had by the time i was sort of 15 16 had had a pretty good collection record collection you know probably a couple hundred records by then so, you know, I was sort of at school working part-time jobs and, you know, I'd always try to buy a couple of seven-inch singles a week, maybe an album or two. You know, if you worked a bit of overtime, you'd buy, buy, buy an extra album. And so, yeah, so, you know, by the time I was 15, 16, I had a pretty good collection. And then one day I get a knock on the door friend of mine, his, uh, his father ran a high school disco here and I get a knock on the door and said, Ken, we need, we need you to DJ. And I'm like, what? what, what what's going on? And he's like, well, the guy that we had working uh, in, the, in the venue, his, his father... Uh, uh, his father had an argument with the with the guy that was DJing, and uh, the guy that they had DJing, he had his light boxes kicked in. So uh, through the argument, he, he wanted him to pay for the light boxes. He said, no, I'm, I'm not paying for your light boxes. So he just decided not to turn up. So they had 200 kids at this high school disco, 
and no DJ. So I got a knock on the door, we need you to come and DJ. So the, the first record I ever played was Boogie Wonderland, Earth, Wind and Fire. Dropped it on the turntable and then had no idea what I was doing, but the kids liked what I did. So then I just did that for maybe, you know, for a couple of years, but through that, you know, I met some good friends and then went, went to my first club when I was 17 and had my first residency when I was 17 and 10 months. So it was a, it was a true baptism of fire, as they say. I know. So let me ask you then, was there any go-tos around you at that time that was mixing or anything that you guys were talking about or you, or you heard about or heard them play at a club and said, what is that where they're making the transitions? You know, because again, you, yeah, guys, you know, you're not really, you're in your own little microcosm. So what was happening around you? Well, one, one of the biggest influences in my career was a guy called Mick Williams. And Mick Williams was working at a club called Casablanca. And Mick was a, he was a South African guy who had been in Australia for, for three or four years. <clears throat> And when I saw Mick play, because coming from South Africa, of course, you know, they, they had all, they, 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 they had access to all the music. And it was just, the, the mixing was just mind-blowing, like what it was doing. Because he, that, he, that was one of the first clubs that had the original, the, the techniques before the 1200s with the roll pitch. Remember the roll pitch? It had a little wheel. <laughs> so you had to. Adjust the wheel. <laughs> so, I, still, I still have my 1100s, so I know. Oh, do you? Yeah, I mean, fantastic. Take, take, so the little the little pitch wheel. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So and when you tell people that they had the little pitch wheel, and what he was doing was just amazing. But you know, the the, the influence that that man had on my career and my musical taste was just was absolutely second to none because as you know you know you're living in a in, in a country where there's there's virtually no black music on radio there's you know of course this is you know no internet no mobile phone so how, how are you going to find out about music the, the only way was was in the clubs so mick so you had to rely on those people that were a little bit older imparting their knowledge onto you and the greatest thing with Mick is that he would, he was willing to impart that knowledge. So he would be like, you know, he'd put on Muscle Shoals Horns, he'd put on uh, Red James Odyssey, What Is Funk? So all these old school funk songs, Muscle Shoals sounds, and, you know, and Daz by Breek, you know, all these Chase Me by Confunction. So all these classic songs he's playing and you're hearing these songs for the first time and it's just your mind's just spinning. Your mind's just spinning. And But he was willing to impart that knowledge onto you and he'd say, you know, this is the album, write it down, go and find it. So then I would, you know, do a hunt through all, all, all the stores in Melbourne or I'd, I'd, I'd be, be ringing up stores in L.A., or, or in New York to try and get a hold of this record because, it, you know, and the telephone calls would end up, end up costing you as much as the record that you're buying, you know, <laughs> because you didn't have access to the music. 
And then, yeah, so then I had my, my first residency when I was, you know, on, on the cusp of turning 18. And then it just just all all uh, all, all took off from there. And this and actually, fresh new and, thing, all new thing. Uh, it's totally new. This is new. Yeah. New story. There is nobody to go, well, let me go look back what they did. There's nobody to go look back. Yeah. And then, and then within the community, the, you know, the, the, the DJ community, and, and then as I got to know, you know, we were talking about the great club Chasers. And, you know, Chasers is still going. You know, 45 years later, Chasers is still there. It's like that bastion of, of, of Melbourne clubbing that, you know, that, that just stood the test of time. And, of course, there's been other great clubs. You know, you, you probably played at the Metro here in Melbourne. There's, there's great, great nightclubs, but, they're you know, they're dust and rubble now. The Chasers is still there. Chasers is still going strong. <laughs> it's like it's like, like in the Godfather. I gave him six shots. Six shots, and he couldn't go down. Then I have the bad luck now. <laughs> wow. That's another thing I learned about old school Melbourne. It was all run by mafia Italian guys. Kind yeah. of mafia New York in a way. The way when I went there, I was like, wow. Even well, here, well, the same way. You know, I, I, I don't know if, if you ever went to the, the, the fruit and vegetable market here, Victoria Market, which is just on the cusp of. On, on the outskirts of the city, and they they, they had mafia shootings in the sixties there, you know, with all the fruit and vegetable guys, with all the standover men. So, yeah, it, it was back then, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so then, you know, get, getting back to the music. So, you know, there, there was a DJ at Chasers, John John Patton, you know, who, who was a great influence. Again, on, on on my early career, he was he was an English guy who migrated to Australia. Again, a, a, a great mixer, and the, these guys had had access to to good records and they had good collections. But then, the first international DJ who had a residency here was a guy you may have heard of a guy called you know Mario Gonzalez. He, he, he was a DJ from. From LA in the in the late seventies, and he came and he had a residency at a club here called Madison's in Melbourne. And this is this is going back to 82, 83. And he had all the US record company promos, all those promo 12s, and all the acetates and test pressings. And that was just wow, you know, it's like. We just didn't get access to any of those records at all until probably, you know, the 90s, the record company started servicing vinyl to DJs here where you get the promo packs. But before then, it just, it was, it was just unheard of, unheard of to see, to see tracks and hear tracks on, on 12s that you just you didn't even think existed. We well, didn't know that they existed. They no, I know that. There was a lot of things going. You know, I, I tell people those test pressings and those promos were gold. Mm. 
back then because not everybody had access to that stuff. Not everybody. And, and they're worth an absolute fortune now. But, you know, the, the, the quality in those pressings is, you know, when, when you hear them now, and, and, and as you know, you know, that, that art of, the art of mastering for, for vinyl is completely different. And you've got to have, you know, the right, right mastering guy, the, the right cutting guy, just to get that sound that you want. It's, but you, you know, can explain that to the younguns that watch the show. Those records were made with musicians and studios and everybody had their jobs. It was not like now where it's the bedroom DJ does everything. <laughs> you know? And it's crazy, isn't it? And as you know, you know, a lot of the, the, the funk and the disco, because it was all... Live music, live musicians, live drummers—you know—as good as they were with their timing, it's just that—that's where you learned the art of of uh, beat mixing. You know, because you just had to be constantly on the go and and tweaking it. You know. So uh, off screen, everybody was telling me about his escapades working in the industry. This is where it gets fun now. So he's doing the DJ and he's still young and he, he progresses, takes it to the next level. So you could start telling us about the touring, the road shows and stuff that you did. Yeah, well, I was, it, it's sort of funny that, you know, you, you fast forward to, to, the, to, the, to the late 90s and, you know, I had this idea because there was still a, a lot of the music, a, a lot of the club music that people were into, it, it wasn't played on radio. So I started work for, for a record label called Pro DJ. And I said to the owner, I said, you know, every, every time I go into my, my barber shop, he's playing these old school tapes of, you know, Dancer, Gino Socho, you know, Harmony, Susie Lane, all the... All, all the early disco stuff, like, you know, laid back, ride the white horse. And he said, man, if, you know, if we, if we could only get this music on CD, and a lot of it still hadn't been released on CD. So I said to Jeff, what, why don't we look at putting out like a, like a mix? We have an album. We'll have a CD with... 12 or 14 tracks. We have all the, the, the extended mixes and we, we couldn't get access to the, to, to the masters from overseas. So what we did is we, we licensed these tracks from the labels here in Australia and we used the, the 12 inches and we, and we actually went into the studio and cleaned them up, got rid of all the pops and crackles out of, the, out of them. And then we said, well, how, how are we going to get these to the people? And we said, well, what we'll do, there was a big chain of stores called, called Sanity stores here in Australia and I said if we can get them to play it on a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon when all the mums and dads are out shopping and they walk, walk into the record store and they hear this CD playing and if, if they're there for three or four or five minutes and they catch three or four or five songs off of this CD that's playing and the, these, CD, these CDs just walked out the door and we're talking about sales of, 
you know, it's in Australian terms, maybe not big in American terms, but, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30,000 copies of these CDs we sold. So that sort of laid the foundation for my work within record companies. And then, yeah, and through that and through, through the club work, just, just through connections, just sort of started, started touring and, and uh, building, building on my name and, and, and my reputation. And you, you, may, you may remember uh, the label Vicious, which is John Course and, sure. and Andy Van with, with, with Madison Avenue. Yeah, very well. I know the guys. But wait, before you get to that point, before you mention Vicious, on those original compilations, albums, did you compile them or did they have you as a compiler or did you actually mix them at the, at the original ones? Yeah, we, we, we mixed them. We went into studios and we did, we did like a, it, it's like a mega mix, which is like 15 or 20 songs condensed, condensed in, into a mix that was maybe you know, 15 minutes, similar to what DMC do in the UK, you know, like with their mega mixes. So it's just a, a, a mix to sort of get to get people's attention where you hear like maybe a minute, a minute and a half, two minutes of a song. So, yeah, so we did that. And then, and then in 99, 2000, started work with Andy and John at, uh, at, at Vicious. And then we released uh, a series of CDs called Dance R&B Anthems, and that's sort of like when, when the whole sort of like urban and funk thing was, it, it, there was this real groundswell of the music. So then I released my first CD through them, Dance R&B Anthems. I said to John and Andy, you know, the, the music's gaining more and more popularity. Let's... Uh, you know, one one test the waters and get a CD out there. The next thing you know, the CD's gone platinum. And platinum in Australia is like 70,000 70, units. So then from there, I got approached by Austereo, which is the largest commercial network in the country. <coughs> and they they asked me to put together a uh, a radio show. So next thing you know, I, I had a national radio show, a one-hour radio, one-hour radio show, which went all around the country. And then from there, just started getting approached by touring agents to work with with different acts. So I was fortunate fortunate enough to work with Pink, Chaka Khan, on several occasions. Toured with Chaka. Toured with George Benson, Earth, Wind and Fire, Cool in the Gang. Just marvellous experiences. Just just to work with, with artists of that calibre was just, and to be a part of it. Yeah, because they're all, they're all veterans in class act, all each one that you mentioned. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, they're, they're true artists that put on a real show, you know. They give their all, whether they're performing to 200 or to 100,000 people. They put on the same show. So now, when I asked you about the touring, I remember you mentioned about, uh, we're going to give you a little antidote there, everybody, so you can laugh a little bit. He did some he did some work behind the scenes pre to this when he worked with some of the rock bands and stuff. So we're going to want to give you some light part to this. 
So off camera, he was telling about his story with ACDC. Well, you know who ACDC is, right? When he screams, ah! you know, singer, right? <laughs> Every song sounds like that. He sounds like, even when he talks, okay, so you worked doing the backstage for a lot of those acts, right? Pre to this is. Yeah, I worked when, when I was 15 during the summer. So I, I started working for a company called Artist Concert Tours. And Artist Concert Tours did all of the, they worked with, in conjunction with the big promoters, sort of Michael, Michael Chug and Michael Edgeley and Michael Gadinsky started putting on shows back then. Yeah, so I started working for our artist concert tours, you know, basically as, as a rigger, setting up the speakers, setting up the stands, you know, get, getting getting all the sound set up. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, be up close and personal with with a, a lot of those big name rock acts, and one of, one of them was what was ACDC. And yeah, I told you the story earlier how we, how you know during the show, Angus Angus Young, you know the crazy guitarist, had lost a plate with his. He had a plate that had three teeth on it. So he's and and you know you know how crazy Angus is. He's always sort of bopping his head. So his plate fell fell out. And and back then at, at all. At all those concerts, the kids, uh, the kids would throw streamers and God knows. They'd be looking like a They'd be just jumping up and down yeah. like yours, right? <laughs> yeah. So then, the, so then the concert, the concert finishes, and you know that the band manager's like, you know, we've got to find Angus's teeth. We've got to find Angus's teeth. And I said, well, I'll, I'll have a look. So I'm going through all the streamers on the floor, and finally I found the plate with Angus's teeth on it. So I go, I go. So the the backstage area was was downstairs at this venue, the My Music Bowl. So I go downstairs, boom, 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 boom. the dressing room door, and the bouncer opens the door of security, and he's like, "What do you want, kid? What do you want?" <laughs> and I said, "I found Angus's teeth." <laughs> And then Angus comes in and goes, yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks very much. And then they invited me. I was too scared. I was just like opening the door and there's all these women. And I was going to ask you, was everybody naked? <laughs> to, to be honest with you, uh, 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 I, I can't really remember. It was just all a blur. And I was just, my heart was just yeah, raking a million miles an hour. And I just, <laughs> I just had it over teeth and ran. Here's your <laughs> Is your teeth? <laughs> yeah, and I, got, and I got to work with with uh, with, with Alice true. Cooper. We were talking about Alice Cooper. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to, and please do not forget to follow us.